Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Eccentric Cities podcast. So as many people will know, this podcast is about interviewing people deep inside the industry and bringing a bit of a human side to the big bad world of real estate and urban development. Uh, this latest episode is a slightly different. I really liked this one. Um, I got to know a chap called Robin Mazumder, mostly through Twitter, which has been great. And uh, he's spending some time here in the UK working at University College London alongside our scientific director, Dr. Hugo Spears. So we took the time amongst many of other conversations that we've been having to knock our heads together and do some podcasts around London. Uh, I've really enjoyed reading Robin's tweets as he's just navigated the city and it's brought such a fresh perspective for a city I personally have known my entire life. And um, so I thought it would be great to combine these two ideas, these two attitudes that we have to cities. His obviously his home uh, land is Canada and the cities that he has grown up in around there, obviously very different to London. So in a, a series of podcasts that we're going to do, and this is the first one, we are going to be walking through London and stopping every now and again and having our conversations and the interviews and we're going to sort of break things up over a different series but we really wanted to kind of practice what we preach and see what of the city kind of we could embody uh, throughout our conversation and what little sights sounds smells would inform part of our conversation as we went through um Robin is uh doing a lot of things out there at the moment He's doing quite a few things. I mean, his background at the moment, he is a doctoral candidate in cognitive neuroscience at the University of Waterloo, where he is studying the psychological impacts of urban design. So his main thing is about using sophisticated wearable technology and immersive virtual reality. Uh, and his intention is to examine how people experience cities. It's obviously something very close to all of our shared hearts. Um, he does have a massive love and inspiration for cities. Uh, and he has a lot of background working, which he'll go into as a uh, mental health occupational therapist. So uh, he's got a great background from the academic side, but also huge from the urbanist side. You know, he's got one foot in technology, one foot in very much in industry and just jumping right deep into academia. So I hope you enjoy uh, this next podcast and a few more that are going to go into conference. So without any further ado, So we're here sitting in Tavistock Square Gardens on a glorious Sunday morning. The sun is shining, the birds are chirping, there's lots of people walking around really confused, which is always London on a Sunday morning. Um, but I'm sitting here with Robin Mazunda. Uh, I gave a little intro before, but Robin's here in London for a little bit. Um, Robin, what are, you, what are you up to whilst you're here in London? Uh, I'm here to spend the summer working with uh, Hugo Spears at the University College London um, to look at different ways of uh, exploring my research question uh, because I'm doing my PhD in Canada um, in the Urban Realities Lab under the supervision of Colin Ellard. So largely here to look for new spins or new perspectives on, you know, understanding the psychological impacts of uh, urban design. Awesome. How did you get to even wanting to think about this kind of stuff? It's always good to know someone's like personal journey beyond their kind of like their CV. Like what was that kind of hook and crook that inspired you to kind of go down this line yeah um i i've always loved cities i grew up um half my life in montreal and then the second half of my life in victoria british columbia so they're on kind of opposite ends of what urban life could be one is a bustling culture rich uh, metro metropolitan city um and the other is a very green small town by the ocean so those contrasts have kind of 
made me really reflect on cities and what makes me happy in a city. But it really came to me when I was working as an occupational therapist. I did my master's in 2011 from the University of Toronto. And um, occupational therapists are healthcare professionals that uh, work in a variety of contexts. Um, and really our purpose is to help people um, engage in meaningful activities um, because we, we see that their engagement in these act- activities or what occupational therapists call occupations um, is a key to, to health. But part of that is um, in way, the way the occupational therapists distinguish themselves from other healthcare professionals is our focus on how the environment might shape someone's well-being, their experience, and their functioning. And so I was working as a mental health occupational therapist in downtown Toronto with um, patients on an inpatient schizophrenia unit. And my job was to help them get acclimatized to, um, you know, to basically transition them out of, out of the hospital care to live successfully in the community. And so I was really trying to understand how the environment of a city would like impact them. Concurrently, you know, I was becoming more interested in urbanism. Um, and after working in Toronto, I moved to Edmonton um, and continued, you know, working in community mental health with this curiosity around how the city environment would impact the mental health of my clients, but also got really, really involved in a lot of urban initiatives that really um, showed me that there was some need to better understand the uh, mental health impacts of of city living and urban design. And I looked into the research and, you know, there's a bit, but there wasn't much. And I had always wanted to be a professor. So I was kind of had this PhD in the back of my mind. And then I saw a tweet in, um, containing a, an article that Colin Ellard, you know, my supervisor wrote on how boring cities are bad for your health. So that was kind of this like aha moment. And I, um, you know, quit my job and um, started my PhD. Awesome. That's a, it's a fundamental essay. It's uh, Streets with No Game. Yeah. I mean, that's the one I, um, yeah, first came across that. It was uh, Aeon published yeah. it. Uh, really great. I think I've uh, pumped it out through social media a number of times. It, it clearly articulates um, the idea of that, that kind of oppressive environment, um, the way, you know, we have these boring facades and they were measuring things like blood pressure uh, to determine whether someone was almost feeling relaxed or on a very basic level, just kind of well as they were navigating and how that changed their moods and their sort of decision making and I think it's it touched on quite like obvious things that we know but I think one of the great things that Colin was really demonstrating and what you know the the synchronicity between what Hugo's doing here in uh, at at UCL and obviously Hugo's a a reader in neuroscience with a specialism in uh, spatial cognition that whole idea of how do people understand their environment how do they navigate it how do they understand their mobility that whole point of where am I what am I doing how do I move there's there's a real connection in that science and it's it's quite obvious but in in a same way we're still trying to drill down to understand where these kind of baselines are um to understand well how if this is very obvious how do we start to build these tools out going forward but you know within that both um i I believe colin and obviously hugo are neuroscientists why did you kind of find the idea of neuroscience to be um that path to take after um an occupational therapist yeah you know what's interesting is um so occupational therapists and the master's education we take classes in neuroanatomy and I was I had a bit of a challenge with rote memorization of the numerous parts of the brain and um, but at the same time I was really fascinated by those correlates like I feel like neuroscience offers 
it helped it helps us kind of really focus in on what's what's happening and i, and I mean um and when you understand that i mean i guess the other thing i'll say is three years into a phd in neuroscience and i realized even the most um you know well-renowned neuroscientists don't really know much about what's actually still happening in the brain. <laughs> yeah. so you know i think we're kind of it's like the that story about the the blind men and the elephant trying to figure out what they're touching and trying to you know understand if it's an elephant or a tiger or, or whatever right and so your the brain is still definitely a giant mystery but i think it's to me it's one of the most exciting um areas of research um right now because it's such, there's so many it's it's developing at such a fast pace and you're looking at things like you know ai and neural nets and um and so i felt that neuroscience was just the best toolkit you know i think i think that's probably to to concisely answer your question i think neuroscience offers a really interesting evolving toolkit that will be essential to everything in our lives from urban planning to understanding you know how how people use technology awesome nice nice answer there um within that kind of toolkit one of the things that you're really looking at uh correct me if i'm wrong is actually kind of what type of um sort of neurotechnologies or how do we look at technology um complementing uh understandings from neuroscience in the built environment i think one of the the things that i've always learned from from hugo is that look we can we can do self-reported analysis which is really important to do and you know people uh, people can say, yeah, and I was happy here, but it's always a passive action. It's yeah. never in that real time. It's it's never that. But but also, kind of neuro gives us that ability to to find and art, or articulate what people maybe not be able to express. So kind of like, what's your, you know, what have you been doing um, uh, over at the uh, University of Waterloo with Colin? Um, kind of what's your plan at the moment with how to take stuff out of the lab and into the wild? Yeah, you know, that's really. There's a good point about the self-report. Psychologists kind of historically use these subjective self-reports, typically, you know, with trying to understand someone's affect, so their their mood or their emotional state. And um, I've been experimenting with different ways of getting at that. We initially used a an implicit measure, so basically trying to access someone's unconscious state, but that measure wasn't particularly effective, you know. Um, now we're using more um, explicit questionnaires like the PANAS, the positive uh, affect, negative affect schedule. Um, but regardless of the subjective stuff, to me what's most interesting is our physiological responses. So in our lab, we use um, electrodermal activity as one of the main indicators for emotional, emotional arousal. So that's basically someone's state of like emotion. When you sweat, obviously we sweat to, for thermoregulation to maintain our body temperature. But uh, we also sweat when our, we're aroused or stressed. And so that's a really interesting measure, although messy and, and I pull, I've lost a lot of hair, you know, trying <laughs> the analysis of the data, but it's, you know, then that's the piece is that these things are evolving and we're getting better at measuring, but it's still kind of a pain in the ass to look at this data. So we use that, we use, um, uh, like you mentioned, blood pressure, heart rate variability, um, ultimately trying to combine that again with that subjective measure because these don't pro- these only provide the um, indicators of arousal but not necessarily the valence of the emotion. So someone can be positively aroused or negatively aroused. And so it's this kind of game of storytelling, piecemealing these things together because there isn't a kind of cohesive one tool that will do all of that. 
And so we're, you know, it's, I feel like we're building a prototype and, um, at some point perhaps we can combine all of it. But for now we're kind of taking little pieces of, you know, different technologies to try and tell a story, which at times is confusing to me and doesn't turn out the way I expect it to, but I mean, that's science. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's, 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 you know, the, in terms of measuring someone's emotional state, it's like this, this learning experience and trying to figure out how to do that effectively. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, as I may have explained in the intro, the the way we're going to handle this um, this podcast and perhaps a series of podcasts is we're going to, as you know, we're we're sitting here in Tavistock Square Gardens. We're going to be moving around uh, London, different parts of London, and kind of rejoining the conversation. And we kind of want to embody a lot of the the city into our conversation, into our narrative. So, um, to kind of feed off that next section, um, you just going to give me a quick intro to what you're looking at um under the theme of oppression in cities yeah so um i guess one of the the key the the basis or the foundation of my thesis is looking at this concept um called oppressiveness that came out of this research that was done by a landscape architect at harvard in 2012 and his work was actually based on um, a bit of a history of Japanese research into this um, sensation that they call apakukan, which literally translates into pressure. And they suggested that when people, um, people experience apakukan when they're in a crowded room with a lot of people, when they're in a room with low ceilings, or um, when they're in a city surrounded by really, really tall buildings. And so in our lab, we're really interested in, you know, understanding the psychological impacts of urban design. And one of the key things I think that's beginning to define cities, especially in London, I've been reading all these articles about how people are having issues with skyscrapers being built. You know, we're with from population density to land use, you know, skyscrapers are probably going to need to be a part of our plan in cities to ensure that we keep our footprint as small as we can. But I think we need to ask some questions around what being in the presence of these tall, looming structures, um, you know, are. And so as Gerzade, this landscape architect at Harvard, they basically tried to, they measured this oppressiveness scale. They had asked people how oppressive buildings were on a scale of one to seven and showed them, you know, uh, pictures essentially. And then they followed that up with uh, a field study where they took people out to to Hongo Street in Tokyo, which is considered to be a pretty oppressive street. It's narrow and the, t- and the buildings are tall. And throughout this, these, these two studies that they did, they made the suggestion that there were some sort of psychological impacts or that there were emotional impacts and stress impacts, but they didn't explicitly measure that. And so my dissertation is largely trying to see if you can not whether maybe you know if you can measure someone's psychological um, response to these conditions um, by measure with you know psychophysiology and whether it's an actual you know uh, phenomena and I mean on an anecdotal level I totally feel that and you know when I've done my experiments participants will say yeah I totally get that feeling the challenge is in how and if we can actually capture that accurately using psychophysiological measure, measures yeah Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's go for a little walk through London, see uh, what might be oppressive. Or actually, we're in Bloomsbury, which is a wonderful area. So maybe we'll save that topic for another uh, another walk through the city of London. 
All right, so we've made a, a little sojourn and journey through central London. We're now sitting in beautiful Lincoln's Inn Fields, surrounded by a lot of history, culture, a lot of lawyers and solicitors out there baying for cash as they go about their days. But on a Sunday, it's not that. It's people playing in a park. And we actually just passed uh, what we couldn't work out was whether a, uh, a picnic for a group of seven-year-olds or a group of 70-year-olds. It was a good mix. It looked really gorgeous. And it's one of those things that you want to get out and explore London on a on a Sunday morning. It's very different to a, to a Saturday night. But where we left the conversation was this theme of oppressiveness. So how do we start to understand how the built environment is adding to its sort of different psychological states and how we're kind of reinterpreting that? But a lot of this rhetoric that's coming out of urbanist movements and urbanism movements and everyone you know from psychologists from neuroscientists from people just saying i'm sick of being around so many big buildings that don't represent me um a lot of this narrative is coming from quite sort of like western anglo-american uh and sort of like north american i should say societies like so robin in your journey into researching looking at this are you seeing um that this is a fully sort of international concept in that you know, you're seeing it from the Far East, you're seeing it deep in South America, across Africa, because we've got to, you know, we've got to look at, make sure that what we're researching isn't just such a sort of uh, a temporal and local idea if we're going to make this more about how we understand cities, because, you know, the growth of mega cities are going to be, um, you know, places like Lagos, they're going to be um, uh, Manila, they're going to be Mumbai. And it's a very different sort of mental perception about what cities should be. So I'm going to kind of throw that big uh, meandering question kind of in, in your way about your view on how we're looking at cities from a point of sort of oppressiveness and whether we're going to find this kind of tsunami of mental health issues will come in 20 years time. Yeah, um, great question. And um, so I guess I'll answer in a few parts. So <clears throat> in terms of whether it's uh, localized to, um, you know, a Western uh, context or if it's global, I mean, there's the Japanese who came up with this um, understanding the actual or even having the word for for this sensation of oppressiveness um, and it made its way to to North America um, by way of um, Mortezas Grisade who did that study I mentioned um, but I think you know something that's interesting in um, in neuroscience um, and psychological research is um, unconscious affect um, and you know um, I think it was Kant who said um, that our unconscious um, aesthetic appraisal of something occurs almost instantly and then that's followed up with a kind of cognitive or, or an intellectual reflection on it. So I think, you know, oppressiveness is perhaps something that everyone experiences, whether they're conscious um, and reflective of it, I think is something else. So maybe in North America, you know, we're having these these conversations about it and it's more explicit but I would wager that this is a universal experience and so the stress impacts are probably still present everywhere and so then when we get into this this other conversation around um, international cities uh, eastern cities uh, and how they'll deal with these psychological pressures in a so social context where mental health isn't discussed or there's not as much access to mental health services. I think the other thing that we have to kind of examine is that while we may have an abundance, actually, no, we don't have an abundance in North America. <laughs> while we have access to psychiatric care, 
and there's a you know there's an emerging kind of acceptance of mental health issues um while those while the while that may be contrasted to cities like lagos or manila where these services or these conversations aren't happening we also need to recognize the cultural context and how people support each other i mean when i was an occupational therapist um working in on a psychiatric unit there was a client that was from the philippines um and the team was really f- pushing uh you know because we all were all about independence and autonomy in in the west and um occupational therapy especially always tries to promote independence as it's as if it's a really good thing which in a lot of cases it is because you know people with disabilities don't need people doing things for them but there's a there's a cultural lens on that and uh his family was saying no he's going to live with us and you know he's in his 40s and um i you know i grew up in an indian culture and i kind of grew up in between worlds of this individualist western world and recognizing this collectivist culture where you take care of your parents or if you're sick you go live with your parents or 30 40 year old you know kids basically living with their parents still and that's seen as normal so with with these mental health issues kind of you know maybe coming to a, a bit of like a bursting point in these international cities that you mentioned we maybe you know in the west we have access to these uh, mental health resources but we're also a terribly lonely society you know we it's we, those social supports need to literally be built into programming whereas in these other places i'm making some assumptions here but um in these other places maybe there might be more natural support so while the conversations may not be happening the actual the i don't, I don't want to say the cure but some of the solutions are all already embedded within their natural framework and so it's a question of whether these are going to be eradicated by western ideals and if we westernize the this this part of the world and it's increasingly becoming westernized will they lose those natural kind of um supports or or buffers that would you know assist someone who's who's having some mental health issues i think what's really interesting that you're kind of hitting on that is that idea of, of loneliness so something that's really that's eulogized and talked about so much um in uh, in a lot of press and media, this idea of you know of feeling isolated and it really wraps around our identity, but the idea is also being probably embedded in how we 're encouraged to live alone and I think this really supports like the real estate industry obviously you kind of break up those family units you 're increasing your opportunity of um, how many people can almost move into real estate uh you know we want we want to encourage one bedroom living but it's that's almost the beginning of how to isolate that family structure which is your, which you're kind of talking about here so one of the things that is becoming more and more popular uh making a resurgence is is the kind of cooperative uh living structures not necessarily that the kind of the co-living that we're seeing in a lot of uh, in a very sort of trend social you know people like we work doing there we live you know uh, here in the uk we've got a company called the collective and it's really going uh, whilst i think it's fine it, it will work for a lot of people it's kind of like advanced student housing for those who've got jobs and when actually okay so we can't make people live together uh, but we can look better at perhaps intergenerational living mm-hmm. and i don't know whether you've uh, we've been looking at kind of these facets whether these are sorts of things we need to adopt into more of our western 
cities as such or, or you know living ecosystems rather than kind of having to look at well will alter you know will um will other cities in developing nations or developing mega cities kind of have to adopt our principles well you know are you coming across anything interesting in the kind of that cooperative co-living intergenerational side of things um well i mean i've just got my own kind of i guess reflections on it it's interesting even when we're talking about the west the difference of um living styles i live in a mid-sized city in canada kitchener waterloo it's called kitchener waterloo because it's basically a smush of two cities which would probably just be one but they're maintaining their borders but anyway it's about 400 500 people and i have like you said, we prioritize or we kind of glorify independent living. And if you have roommates in Canada, at least, you know, it's seen as a bit of like a, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, there's a distaste for it, let's say. And so, um, I have, you know, I have a pretty spacious one bedroom apartment and I live alone and I largely work alone as a PhD student. And so I didn't realize how lonely I was in Canada until I came to London. Because, um, as you know, as you know, <laughs> it's very expensive to live here, and I'm living in some somewhat of like a a WeWork PhD. Um, sorry, just we almost there's a big flutter of pigeons that flew over us, and I was hoping to God that we wouldn't they wouldn't leave some trace on our clothing. But Stanley Kubrick style film. Yeah, yeah, the birds. Um, yeah, so you know, um, in London, I'm living in a PhD like grad student dorm. And my room is very small. Um, the bathrooms are tiny. Um, we have to share the bathrooms and the shower. And we uh, have a kitchen on each on each floor of the flat that we share with 10 other people. And I got here and I thought, oh my God, uh, I don't not, how, I'm gonna be able, how am I gonna be able to adjust to this? And I realized how much happier I am being around people and um, that structure where you have your own space, but there is a common play, space for you to go. You know, sometimes if, you're, if I'm feeling like lonely or something, I'll go sit in the kitchen. One of my roommates or flatmates will pop in to make themselves some food. We'll have a good chat. Sometimes I'll end up going up for beers after or whatever, or going for a walk. And those opportunities for connection, I think, are key. Like that's probably one of the biggest things that's come out to me since beyond living in an amazing city like London and enjoying what the city offers is I might have had it got it wrong in Canada I'm like thinking about maybe I'll go back and look for some roommates you know um, because I've just seen the very tangible impacts it's had on my own kind of mental well-being you know Mm -hmm. it's too easy and especially in Canada in the winter to shut yourself in to your one-bedroom apartment order takeout or whatever and watch Netflix by yourself for a week you know that wouldn't just that wouldn't happen here. If I did that, if I if I even pulled out here, I'm sure my roommates would come knock on my door and say, "Hey, are you okay? We haven't seen you around." So, I think we need to figure out a way to um, facilitate and encourage co-living, not even because of the land use issues, but because I think it's just necessary to our mental health. You know, um, my one of my best friends growing up is Punjabi, and um, they brought their collectivist culture with them from India. Canada and at any given point there's like 15 people in their house they build these giant mansions but it's because grandmothers and grandfathers from both sides of the family come there's like three or four generations living together and the house is always alive you know you never feel alone sometimes you want to kind of poke your eyes out because you want some quiet time and so my you know Simmer would come to my house (laughs) when he needed to be away from the kids or the grandparents but I just think that it adds so much 
a, a very it contributes to a robust sense of well-being and um yeah we need to figure out ways to encourage that and make that almost seem more appealing than you know having this unnecessarily big one-bedroom apartment that you're living living in on your own yeah it's a really fine balance to look at because i think you know as you just described your friend almost sought a bit of escape so you've got to have those places in which people can escape um and it is a real balance of urban planning as such i think this is where a lot of this comes down to because you know real estate is essentially well someone will say it works both ways but uh the real estate industry is dictated by the planning opportunities within those uh you know municipalities boroughs cities councils whatever you kind of want to call them and you know, so there, there is a directive of we need X many properties to be built to cater for these people. We need this amount of retail to cater. And we're probably seeing actually that the way we look at land usage from a space, like from a zoning classification or like a planning use class to really flatten out, to kind of reinterpret going, okay, well, let's look at the idea of cooperative living. But if we're going to have that, what are the kind of antidote spaces that people are going to need? So if we're going to densify people, let's make sure we also free people as well. And it's, I think that's one of those challenges that's certainly what we're kind of interested at centric is really looking at that uh that balance on you know if people are trying to achieve certain tasks how do these things work in an equilibrium how do we look at that natural order to allow that kind of agency to go right i've had this but i always know i can go get that rather than being hemmed in and going well look i live alone where do i go to find people is the only place i find people when i have to consume it's it's a it's, it's a difficult balance to look at. I think so. Where where my question comes off at uh, this point is uh, from what you're seeing, and you know, you you speak regularly, you interact uh, with people across industry and academia. My next kind of question is: if we're looking at oppressiveness, if we're looking at this idea of uh, well-being through living and. I mean, living not mean as in just like going to somewhere to sleep at night. The idea of just a sort of life. Do you think what needs to change most is you know, is it the streets that we need to change? We need to relook at what public space is, or do I actually think it's it's actually much more the kind of the real estate industry that we need to look at um, repositioning itself beyond the kind of rent per square foot or square meter market to be looking a little bit more dynamic in how they're catering and how they're thinking what they're providing as a kind of as a, like a almost like a real you know a built environment producer like a film producer kind of thing so yeah. do you think it's the streets do you think it's the it's the laws or it's actually we need to look much more at actually encouraging change within the real estate industries itself yeah i mean um so uh right at, between my phd and, and uh my work as an occupational therapist i actually quit occupational therapy because i got burnt out from working with a lot of challenging situations so I spent a year actually and I don't know how I got this job but I, I got a job at a polytechnic institute in education like a post-secondary institute in, in um, Canada running their startup accelerator and um, as part of that part of the training that I got to run this accelerator was um, I did a course with the Stanford uh, D school their design thinking school and I love that. That's actually played a pretty um, pivotal role in me wanting going to neuroscience because one of the key elements of the design thinking process was that empathy step, like the user, the user experience, like getting into every step, figuring out how how to optimize it or or enhance the the experience so that you're creating products or 
or designs or spaces that really facilitate the things that you're looking for that also meet the needs of the person you know that's purchasing or you know using your product or whatnot and I think so to answer your question around who how do what do we focus on I think we have to figure out what the experience of city life is like from every step and I've I've been reflecting on, on that a lot like here my space in my room is is tiny I mean that feeling of a pakukan might even be there this this feeling of enclosure so I just go to my room to sleep like that's it I might you know um I don't even read in there because it's just not a pleasant place space to be and so the design of the room and this wasn't intentional this was just them trying to cram as many people as they could into this one building <laughs> but you know stay, stay, staying staying um, isolated in my room is just not a possibility because it's just so aesthetically unpleasing and um just on a it's you know it's dark and um you know there's a little desk for me to do some work if i need to be away from people and but that's where it ends is work and sleep basically um but then the outside of this of that there's a really well-lit kitchen with some great seating it's open concept so there's an inviting nature to it so you want to spend time in the kitchen at the, in the building itself there's a sunken courtyard which has little places like nooks to sit quietly if you don't want to be around people um there's a huge that you know every morning they serve breakfast that's part of this this grad uh, student uh, housing complex deal so that's where you meet people in the morning if you if you don't have plans on that you make sure you get to breakfast because that's where you like say hey what are you doing tonight and then you have plans just to hang out and then you get outside of the building and you know in bloomsbury the streets are very narrow and um It'll, it creates this sense of enclosure, but like good enclosure where you feel comfortable. Um, and then if you want to, if you want to be in some green space, there's six parks within a five minute walking radius. And that's something that's really struck me in Canada. We have this terrible obsession with backyard space. You know, um, you, you, you've got basically these large, you know, I've seen backyards in, in London, actually in my aunt's house last night. It's a backyard, but it's tiny. You know, there's enough to maybe have some garden space to, to grow something, but you're not going to hang out there. Um, and so the design of the the space itself um, and the amount of space that we're allocating to, you know, outdoor space on personal properties is, is smaller here. So people come out to this park, and that's why you've got a seven-year-old or group of seven-year-olds having a birthday there. <laughs> you know, like people are playing soccer over there. Um, people are reading, you know, and, and so I think... It's got to be like from the second you wake, like designers and real estate developers, you know, if the common, if the, if the ultimate goal is to increase well-being, we need to like design think it from the second someone wakes up in the morning and think about what their needs are and try and create like a, a kind of coherent story or experience that engage, like it's, you know, there's a, there's a term called like, it's called a structurationist theory um uh and basically it suggests that behavior is dictated by the environment and you know i think i'm probably somewhere in between uh in the middle point middle ground of that but thinking about how you facilitate behavior with design i think is is key so the streets have to be as inviting as the bedroom you sleep in is uninviting you know <laughs> um to encourage people to be out and around yeah yeah i mean it's it's getting to that point of a better analysis of 
kind of what is life at the moment rather than going okay we need more homes it's like how do we how do we actually live yeah and that's one of those questions that it's not being answered but i think is that is that question at the moment that needs to be addressed more is like do we need more homes or do we need just different ways that we live around each other and it's uh i don't know it's it's something that keeps my mind tinkering the whole time but let's um let's kind of stop this moment here let's uh let's move to a slightly different area of london and continue the conversation a little bit more All right, so we're, we're now in Middle Temple, so we're not sitting in a park, but we're sitting in a place that's equally as tranquil. I mean, I don't know how far back this goes in history, but I give it a good four or five hundred years that it's, uh, it's been around. It's one of the beautiful things about walking around London. You go from com- complete contemporary environments to something just out of nowhere, out of nothing. You know, you're walking past paving stones on the ground that you can see insignias from the 1600s. It's... Uh, and it's um we're, we're sitting on a lot of cut opposite quite a few cars at the moment completely sedentary um which you, you kind of look at it as a kind of waste of space that who knows people might actually be working on some crazy ass law case at the moment but when we just um en route kind of got onto the topic of uh autonomous vehicles and it's something that if anyone listens to the show will know that i have my huge skepticisms about why why we need them and i think there's a lot to be said that a lot of the um the perpetrators maybe not the right word the protagonists if they want to call themselves of autonomous vehicles and um you know self-driving cars are actually the big car companies themselves uh, there's not a lot of independent movement that's really saying well let's keep car-based mobility as the principal form of movement of people around cities and I, there's a lot of human issues we've got to we've got to sort of ask ourselves first. I mean, you know, from my point of view, straight off, we've got to look at why why do we need mobility? Why do we need people to move? I mean, Robin, like you've um, you were just saying, you've got some interesting views on uh, autonomous vehicles, certainly from a North American perspective. But kind of like, where are you where are you seeing its kind of its strength and weakness at the moment? So I'll, I guess I'll start with the strength. Um, as someone who's primarily a cyclist and a pedestrian, we're good. All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. As someone who's uh, primarily a cyclist and pedestrian, um, I deal with um, a lot of angry drivers um, and drivers who speed, and I think the potential to eliminate um, anger and the reckless um, behavior and impulsivity from the from that equation might be nice you know where you don't i mean having to worry about sharing space with an automobile on a street that doesn't have the infrastructure to protect you from one that in itself has some inherent danger but if you are doing it alongside someone who doesn't like you because you're a cyclist or whatnot then they can use their vehicle as a a weapon Um, and so to me that that's an interesting kind of perhaps pro of, of of an av and the other one is um, if they're going to be controlled, you know, by um, computer technology, can you program an AV to break the speed limit? You know, in London, you may not have to worry about speed limits as much in the center because everyone's pretty much moving at a, craw- at a crawling pace. But in Canada, we have pretty wide roadways and cars will almost always break this, the, the law and, it, you know, it makes it the streets a lot more dangerous so i i was thinking well maybe if you have avs then um you just you, they're just regulated to to drive at a specific speed or you can you can modulate the speeds to be specific or particular and 
school zones or what have you so that um, you know you can't deviate from that so I think those are some of the potential pros and I mean it's, the other thing is just if these if these AVs are floating around cities the need for parking space may not be a, an issue because they're just going to be kind of moving around constantly and, and so that kind of shared capacity is interesting to me but on, on the flip side um, I don't think a lot of people are looking at these as they'll as a, they're kind of shared cars they're looking at them as personal vehicles that'll just chauffeur them around and um you know uh, with everything that we know about cars even if they are electric you know cars take up a lot of space they're not particularly efficient um we're just going to have more congestion on our roads and um there's pretty low-tech technology like bikes you know that can get people around or electric scooters or um you know i'm concerned that people are going to start seeing these as replacements for transit you know um you were already seeing uber jumping into that space with uber pool and um and so i'd rather these resources or these you know that the energy and effort going into this going into trying to understand how we can make transit better for everybody so um you know those are some concerns and then uh, beyond all of that is like the safety concerns you know like are they going to develop the sensing technology to be able to sense cyclists and pedestrians um effectively um otherwise you're just going to have like your the streets will be just turned into even more dangerous spaces than they already are and ultimately to cater to the privilege because i imagine a lot of the people who will be the casualties of these accidents or i shouldn't say accidents um crashes um will probably be the people who can't afford to be in an an AV. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a dystopian kind of prediction, but, like, I think it's something that we have to be very, very um, aware of and and actively advocate um, to have these sorts of things examined because, like you said, the people who's who's got the... They're in, the people with the interests in AV technology are giant corporations who have the potential to really lobby and influence the decision makers. So we need to be pretty loud about providing an alternative story that needs to be considered. Yeah, I think that there should be a stronger responsibility between those larger uh, corporations on the fact that the roads are shared places. I mean, it's uh, I, I too, too am a cyclist. Um, I do it because I find it better for my physical and mental health. Uh, but, you know, some of the things that I do get really concerned and stressed out is, you know, you mentioned on earlier on the almost lack of empathy of drivers and I think drivers do have some difficulty because you did say like in congested cities um, a lot of sort of classic cities or maybe classic cool cities you know uh, I think Madrid is about to ban cars from the city centre because it's it's crazy um and you know london is trying to work out how it addresses mobility because yeah it does crawl at a snake but equally it is also then you know the the alternative response is behavior is once a street is perhaps found to be clear i find people are speeding and so we've, we've got to look at the the unintended consequence the what if that happens what is the happen so you know what is the equilibrium of uh, autonomous vehicles being introduced that if we enable individual mobility at a drop of a hat 
is that gonna what does that mean for our chance interactions our, our shared experiences about being on a bus or our shared experiences on being on a train but you know it's um it's one of those sort of human questions that we've got to look at you know over a course of a generation what does it mean to not have human to human connection like what does that mean on a sort of a, an empathy scale which is something that you know it, it kind of gets to the point i saw someone um making a, a mockery of like an uber tweet of like oh if we can aggregate routes based off demand and we have vehicles large enough we can build these really effective routes to help guide people through cities and someone just went stop designing buses it's, a, it's just an interesting analogy to kind of go are you even doing the right thing like this is a great tool and i think this feeds into what you were um talking a little bit before on our walk about smart cities and uh, you were saying somewhere close to home is kind of going through this big thing about being like a smart city and there's some some massive questions they're not even asking at the moment like uh can you go back into that yeah so you know i as someone who uses neuroscience to understand the psychological impact of urban design i am completely all for data-driven um, decision-making because I want to contribute some of that data. Um, and I think smart cities um, are extremely important when, um, you know, like I said, data-driven decision-making. Some decisions are made um, and oftentimes they come from a place of, you know, um, personal opinion. And so I think, yeah, so I'm all on board with smart cities and the capacity that it has to, to make our cities better places. But same time I'm you know where I'm living in Canada and the, the Waterloo region you know it's a bit of a tech hub so there's a the startup community there who's got their vested interest in this and our our regional brand I, I would argue is innovation um, it's Canada's Silicon Valley essentially um, and so there's this big push for smart cities you know our, we just became one of the finalists for the Canadian government smart cities challenge and so there's a lot of you know discussion about it and I'm sitting here and I'm like that's great um, that you guys are um, you know going gung-ho um, on the smart cities initiative but you know should we wait for this we good nah it's London. London we're gonna get used to these sounds we're, we're recording out in the wild so <laughs> helicopter um, yeah you know so yeah go ahead be a smart city but like get the basics down you know it's in, it's insane to me that we're having these uh, you know everyone's getting so excited about this smart city stuff but like the urban design of this the city i live in is to be perfectly frank is stupid you know um uh as a cyclist there's no cycling infrastructure you know so i'm it's a pretty terrifying experience even for me i was a you know a seasoned confident cyclist i still dread getting around my city by bike um, the pedestrian experience is awful. Like we still have to press beg buttons, and when you do, you get ten seconds to sprint across the road while, you know, cars get advanced left turns and things like that. And then you know, I'll roll up to a intersection on my bike, and I have to dismount my bike to go press the button um, to cross safely because it's on a. Um, it's basically you know uh, prioritizing pr the uh, movement of cars, and so I'm standing there thinking. You guys have your priorities all mixed up. There's some really key elements and some basic features of a city that I think should be addressed before we go 100, you know, kilometers an hour into this this smart cities conversation. So it's a frustrate. It's a point of frustration for me because I I can see the benefits of the smart city movement, but it's like 
you know, think about what smart urban design is and just get it done and so we can move on and just stop talking about it and have these bigger conversations around technology. Yeah. I mean, they, they are fun conversations to have and I think they're very sort of politically savvy conversations to have about like a smart city because obviously it's, it is integrating uh, corporations into perhaps civic needs. And yeah, we do need to sort out electricity infrastructure. Yeah, we do need to sort out water infrastructure. And, you know, things like 5G will be transformative uh, into how we look at our cities from certainly a data, but the capability perspective is, yeah, it's integral. But, you know, in missing those obvious things at the beginning um you know you kind of think like hang on hang on politics like what's what's happening here why have you missed some of these really obvious things and we were just kind of talking before about um you know some of what's really obvious in our cities and what we want and what makes a good city has been you know preached from the pulpit since the 60s you know since the you know herbalist of jane jacobs her definitions are they're still valuable today and we then step back a second and go okay well it's been maybe 50 years um you know since since her writings since her speeches uh etc came out and yet we're still kind of in the same place and i i just wonder um whether the urbanist industry and i'm just choosing a word there it's just um and again not everywhere that needs to be made good as a city it's just that you know it's a term that came about through people trying to really challenge their identity with with a city um that you know are there just too many like it feels like a really broken disjointed movement um and i don't know whether it needs to be rethought because if politics isn't really understanding these basic fundamentals of cycle infrastructure and um, how are they going to, you know, what is the industry or, you know, the urbanist industry kind of doing wrong? Um, <coughs> I'm going to throw that, that question back to you because I think you've got some opinions on it. Yeah, I think um, when we talk about like the urbanist uh, movement, um, um, we need to tease apart the political element of that. Um, like you said, a lot of these things that we're advocating for um, are co- almost common sense, you know, and it, they were discussed by Jane Jacobs, um, you know, 50 years ago, and um, we're still we're still stuck where we are. And I think, I mean, at least in Canada, what I see is a lot of great things can happen in cities, but a lot of that rests on the political will of the people that we elect into office, oftentimes at the municipal level. And what's problematic about it is is city staff work largely under the direction or the recommendations from city council. They're the ones who make the um, approvals on budgets. They are the ones that like don't, you know, will give the cycling department, you know, millions of dollars to build bike lanes or they won't. And and to me, this is we're talking about progress, like urban progress, change. And sometimes change is hard. Um, and uh, so in Canadian cities, there's this huge divide between motorists and the rest of, you know, cyclists, pedestrians. Motorists uh, comprise the majority of the, the vote and politicians are aware of that. And so if a politician is like, yeah, we're going to go full steam ahead, we're going to build cycling infrastructure in the whole city, they're essentially risking their job, mm. you know? And so from my perspective, we, we know what good urbanism is and we could do it. 
But what frustrates me, to be to be honest, it makes me really angry. Is the reason that I see a lot of Canadian cities at a standstill is because politicians are more concerned with their political futures and their jobs than they are with actually doing what's right. Because if they did what's right, they might get voted out. Because the motorist majority will say, ah, you know, we just wanted wider roads and whatnot. And so, to me, this whole urbanist conversation um, is is centered around political will, which is stupid. Like it's to me, it's just dumb because we have the expertise, we've got the decades of research. Now we've got neuroscience informing these sorts of things. Like we, we even though I think in some capacity, sometimes we don't need to because we intuitively know what's going to be good for our our cities. We're addicted to the car. We're addicted to our backyards and this abundance of space. And it's just it's just completely irresponsible. Um, you know, uh, in Canada, we, we, we there's almost an arrogance with the, with the way we use space. And you know, we talk about social. Um, uh, fiscal conservatism and uh, social progressive is like this kind of hilarious thing that people talk about when they're when they call themselves conservatives in Canada is that they're well I'm socially progressive but I'm fiscally conservative why don't you try um, spatial conservatism you know like if we spent our money the way that or if we you spent space the way that we try to say that we spend money our cities would look much different but there's this hypocrisy there and we build these giant roads we build these giant backyards we have no regard for the pedestrian or the cyclist experience. We're basically creating highways for people to to speed home to their, uh, you know, backyards after live, working in the quote unquote city, and we've just got it backwards because we think we have this abundance of space. Come to London, you know, like I I went to to Moscow um, last year for um, a cycling con uh, conference, and I and like the the people there were telling me, yeah, we sometimes we are told to leave the city because we can't breathe the air because we didn't build for, I mean, Moscow's subway system is amazing, but there's still a huge issue with like street congestion with cars. And the majority of the pollution there is coming from exhaust. And there's like, they have to leave their city. Like the future exists in our, in the world. And in Canada, we just need to like take a trip and see what it's like. And so yeah, I mean, I think that we know what to do. We know what Jane Jacobs said decades ago is still relevant. Unfortunately, um, is still seen as this ideal that we're aspiring towards. And the biggest, the biggest barrier to getting there is the fact that our our the 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 future of our cities lies in the hands of people who need to make a decision as to whether they want to keep their best interests and their political futures. Um, as their priority or the the needs of their constituents, and whether they're wis they're we um, willing to risk their job, you know, and that's a really tough position to put someone in. And so I would want I would you know I'm wondering if we should just hire experts, which we do in cities. We hire people with urban planning degrees, and you know, then there's some amazing things in school, and then we ask for their opinions, and we just don't take it. And so maybe we should just give them a bit more control so that the responsibility can be offloaded from the politicians um, and we can just allow good urban design and, and urban planning to occur at the, um, you know, uh, at the hands of the people who are actually trained to make those decisions. Because a lot of these politicians aren't even urban planners either. They're usually bus businessmen. I'll say men. Usually in Canada, they're, you know, men are dominating it, unfortunately. And so... You get a bunch of privileged people who actually don't have an education most of the time or expertise in the things that they're having ginormous, ginormous control over and rent. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Good yeah. answer. So, I mean, that leads me to a question that 
has kind of been bubbling under the surface that we've been debating a little bit at Centric. Um, are cities inherently racist? Oh man, yeah. I think I think I think they're racist. They're misogynist. Um, they're homophobic. They're certainly ableist. Um, I think you know when we design cities or when I say we, I mean, I can shouldn't say we as a person of color, but cities were t- the decisions and the designs are informed by the needs of a particular demographic, typically middle-aged white men, straight white men who are able-bodied. And so, you know, they design cities for their needs. And, um, and you know, even when it comes to zoning policies, they're racist. You know, in mm-hmm. the States, they've, I think, what do they call it? The red line or something. There were places where African-Americans couldn't get the mortgages to buy house, yep. houses. And so, um, you know, they were naturally segregated and ghettoized. And all the amenities, you know, are con- are concentrated. Now what's happening in Chicago, I think, there's this guy. I can't remember his name, um, but I follow him on Twitter. And he's advocating for better cycling infrastructure in black communities because what's happening is like the hipster yuppie white guys are getting the cycling infrastructure in their neighborhoods when actually people, because of a number of reasons, poverty included, who need cycling infrastructure because that's their only way of getting around, don't actually have it because they're in these neighborhoods that aren't seen as posh or, you know. And so, yeah, I think cities are inherently racist. They're inherently, and that I think that gets back to the bigger question around like politics. It's we have to look at the power dynamics involved in the decision making uh, around our cities, and uh, and how how we how that informs planning policies. In Waterloo, where I'm you know living, um, there was a a Muslim community that wanted to build a mosque, um, like a religious center, and they had like people protesting at city hall. Um, citing like noise com- issues. Meanwhile, there's an evangelical church down the street, which no one had an issue with. And this is like zoning, you yeah. know, this is, this is really basic. And, and, um, and the, no one attends city hall meetings, but this one's packed. People were, were furious. They're handing out flyers saying, vote against, call your counselor. We don't want this in our community. It's 2018 in yeah. Canada, like in, in a, rel- in, in what's a, you know, purportedly a liberal part of Canada and we've got this nonsense yeah. you know so yeah it, prejudice hides behind like protective laws this false narrative of protectionism is actually and tradition is is prejudice yes yeah um, and uh, you know and there's all sorts of ways it manifests even from jaywalking tickets or you know in, in Edmonton in a city I lived in for a while they were wanting to, to ticket people who smoked in public spaces well let's look at that a bit further typically the people who are smoking in public spaces were some of the homeless population who also happened to be indigenous because of the history of you know intergenerational trauma um, reckon, you know uh, residential schools and now you've got people who congregate in public spaces because they don't have anywhere else to do it and they're mm. smoking cigarettes because they've got some addictions that are the products of generations of, of violence that they, they've experienced. Um, and, you know, at City Hall, they're talking about, oh, let's, let's start ticketing the poor. And what's going to happen? They're not going to pay the tickets. They'll end up in jail. It's crazy, right? All these seemingly innocuous things actually are deeply, deeply informed by, I think, racism and just uh, power and 
the, the desire to oppress. Yeah. No, I mean, it's um, so like that's, you know, we can look at that sort of endpoint being quite a downer. And obviously the question that I ask isn't necessarily a positive one, but yeah. it's um, it's a hugely important one we have to first ask and, you know, to, to move it on and up. Uh, you know, as someone who comes from a very non-science background, someone who is just looking at life, creativity, ideas, movement, people, enjoyment, just these elements um, in cities and then kind of being introduced to this wave of of data that you, when you start to sort of combine the experiential, the sort of the phenomenological uh, data that we can get from the cognitive science, mostly around neuroscience and then aligning that to perhaps you know decades long issues of mental health but also physical health you know um Araceli, who runs our lab you know she really talks about you know obesity is a conversation for for neuroscience it's not just about eat, you know someone eating bad food there are much deeper levels and it's something that we do need to look at through neuroscience so it's kind of i think the uplifting point is that you know as you were saying earlier how do we get more uh, professionals, and I mean like even professional researchers, people who are actively doing this constantly in their life for, for their for their profession, for their livelihood. Um, we're almost, I believe, we've we've got an opportunity to get to the point where the evidence will be too strong to ignore. And I think that's my positive that I'm going to kind of take from from where I see things at the moment. There are really good protagonists kind of going like, let's get this evidence based because yeah something's got to change i mean that's that's certainly my opinion i don't know if you have like a just a you know anything that you've seen that aligns that if you've seen a certain um you know anything happening uh, in the cities that you live or in london or if there's anything you've picked up going you know what i have seen you know this politician was saying that um this you know this institution has made this effort open question i'm putting you on yeah. the spot <laughs> yeah you know actually um one of my friends i became friends with him um when i was in edmonton he's a politician um, he represents uh, the downtown uh, ward in, in Edmonton in Canada. His name is Scott McKean. And he was, you know, this has been a long-standing issue in Edmonton. And very recently, they've actually been able to do something about it. And it's motorcycle noise and car noise. And, you know, it's funny because you can, you can design the most beautiful streetscape. Um, it can be full of people and then some like insecure jackass will roll by in his motorcycle which he, he's removed the, the muffler from and it just completely ruins it. Everything. Yep. The whole experience. And it's constant. Edmonton is like you know an abundance of people who feel the need to show the world how you know perhaps manly or whatever it is they are by virtue of how loud their vehicle is and so now they're doing something about that they're developing a protocol with the police as to how do we deal with people who are contributing to noise pollution which i think is from an urbanist perspective is like a huge contributor to to the stress that we experience you know luckily on our on our uh, podcast um walk tour today we found really quiet spaces um in a in a very bustling city um but uh you know i think the reality in a lot of places especially in canada where car culture is you know strong um you've got this this arrogance and this you know this um i'm not trying to make this negative again (laughs) you've got this issue where there's noise pollution and so i'm really i'm proud of scott and i'm impressed by the fact that they've actually been able to make some headway on this so and then ultimately it contributes to the urban experience significantly so i think that's a really cool way um cool thing to see when it comes to someone taking the initiative probably you know pissing some people off he's probably made some people um angry that now they might get ticketed for driving a loud car or something so 
hey, I'll I'll get arrested or stopped if I just start screaming in public. It, it's a duality. <laughs> wow, that's 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 an excellent. That's a, that's yeah. There you go. Right. <laughs> um, but it's interesting when you're talking about noise. Um, noise to me is a big thing. Uh, I don't know whether I'm oversensitive to it, but irrespective, um, it, it does affect my mental state. Um, and this now, so if we're trying to find a mechanism to listen to noise in cities, I mean, it's the obvious line of how do we listen in cities? I think this is the interesting opportunity that technology is now giving us, is that if we can track um, uh, pollution data, which is becoming really uh, strong and, and good quality, how do we listen to the city? How do we listen to activity? And listen both from a sort of an auditory perspective, but also listen from a... Uh, uh, kind of kind of an existential basis of what are we trying to observe and we've got to stop going top down and really go bottom up yeah. in uh, understanding why people are perhaps walking down an area and then just aligning that to going is it because the roads are just too hectic that they're avoiding you know do they want to go down are they going down that road for a reason do we know that reason I think so that's that kind of like tech question for me I'd love to see you know sensors deployed across cities anonymize the data completely you know build the laws to protect it but we need to you know we need to listen a lot more so like kind of those like lasting questions that I ask people on this podcast like um you know are there kind of two pieces of tech in one in the short term that you think you know what this is really gonna um this is really making a difference at the moment I'm really glad it's happening I want to see it adopted more and what's that kind of like future things that you've read in Wired magazine that you've read like a futurist website or anything like that you're thinking you know what I really feel if we can get that done, if that really happens in the future, I think it's really going to align X, Y, and Z together. Yeah, um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. So when we talk about tech, um, our first thoughts are often like technology as as we understand it from you know uh, cell phones or computer technology, but I think cycling infrastructure is also technology you know it facilitates a process um it's a tangible material literally it's just a physical barrier but it's a tool that i think has the potential to completely transform our cities you know the more people you have feeling comfortable getting out um and uh riding to their bike to work instead of walking or sorry instead of driving um, or even taking the tube because we know the tube is super congested so we need to give people other ways of getting around I think to me that piece of technology in the short term we know the benefits we need just to literally roll it out everywhere blanket our cities with this and then see what happens and stop having this this conversation around um, you know is it worth it or like doing or doing it in very small pieces we're not going to see any impact um on use if we keep rolling it out in tiny pieces we need to give people a connected grid to get around their city so from that tech perspective low very very low tech but i think has probably one of the most powerful transformational um potentials in terms of a long-term tech that i think is just going to be really interesting again we'll have to be aware of how you use it properly is um i think ar I think augmented reality is going to be really interesting, even from like a, you know, a wayfinding perspective, how you find your way around cities. I mean, at the last Google conference, they had whatever they call their big rollout day. They showed the use of, um, you know, uh, using your uh, your phone and it'll use augmented reality to tell you how to get around a city. There's going to be a point where we're not going to use phones anymore. We're going to be wearing 
you know, um, glasses or, you know, looking at something like Magic Leap, which yeah. is like contact lenses, like that's going to be insane. It's going to completely change our urban experience, trying to find businesses, trying to find a way around the city, you know, even seeing what something could potentially look like. So if you want to build something, you know, can you use AR to see what it would look like in the space? Um, that's pretty close. I think we're, that's really starting to happen. In the past year, I've seen some incredible uh, city modeling tools. Yeah. Uh, I think like um, Vue.City, so Vue.City is one that's really made a difference in their uh, city uh, visualization. And the way that I've been told they've, they've done their proposition is to rather than saying to the development industry, like, guys, hey, how about using this? It'd be good for planning. They've actually gone actually the reverse. They've gone to the city authorities and go, you can now use this and to enable to help visualize that everyone should start going through this. I think we're, we're closer on that one, yeah. on that, that first, let's see if we can build it. What will it look like? And then moving on from that, going, what's the experience of that? Is that kind of future part? Yeah, I think, you know, um, the, yeah, you can see what, and I think, you know, for especially in cities like London where you've got a lot of heritage, but you've got new buildings popping up and design elements, there's something to be said about developing a kind of coherent, uh, well put together visual experience of a city, you know, and I think that these sorts of technologies can allow residents as much as the decision makers to see what would this actually look like? You know, artist renderings are one thing, but to actually <laughs> physically stand yeah. on the street and see what that looks like to me is really cool. And then I'd like to see an artist rendering of like four o'clock on a dark day in November when it's raining and windy exactly. and the lights are all orange because you use sodium lamps. I'd love to see that and see what the building looks like. Yeah, they're very utopian. Yeah. You know, the artist renderings are always best case scenario. Everyone's laughing and, you know, it's sunny. But yeah, being able to look at the same place in different environmental conditions in seasons or different levels of like pedestrian density. Um, yeah, it's super super exciting and you know even beyond that you know when our in our lab we study human perception of the built environment and how you can amplify someone's experience or or what design elements would cause or make for a, a better urban experience what if you just built bland buildings that were blank facades that you could choose what you want to see could you imagine that like what kind of architectural styles you'd want to look you know like could you add a layer to the city that you're, you're experiencing to amplify that? Or what would you need to amplify your experience in a city? And could you pick and choose the things that you cut the colors or the design elements? I mean, at that point, we're going to be in the matrix, but you know, um, <laughs> well, so we were in it in Sim city a little bit. So it's uh, yeah. bringing that into reality a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Robin, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. And then we'll do a, we'll do a couple more of these walking around London whilst you're here this summer. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks Josh. So as always, a massive thanks to everyone who always comes on and specifically to Robin for spending the time with me on an early Sunday morning as we walk through the beautiful, uh, sunny London, particularly around Bloomsbury. So uh, if you do have any questions you want to ask Robin or you want to find more about him, he does have a website, which is amazingly his name, which is robinmazumda.com. And amazingly, his Twitter handle is also the same. That's Robin Mazumda, and that surname is M-A-Z-U-M-D. E -R. So thanks again to Robin. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, do drop us a line, say hello, whether it be through Twitter or even say hi on Instagram. We are out there at the Centric Lab. Uh, my name's Josh. Thank you very much for your time and look forward to the next episode with you. Bye. <laughs>